This is Space Time, Series 24, Episode 49. Coming up on Space Time. A record-breaking flare from the sun's nearest stellar neighbour. NASA's Ingenuity continues its flight tests on the red planet Mars. And the pink supermoon. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have detected one of the most violent stellar flares ever recorded in the galaxy exploding out of Proxima Centauri, the nearest star system to the Sun. The massive flare, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, is the largest ever recorded coming from Proxima Centauri, a small spectrotype M red dwarf star located just 4.25 light years away. Proxima Centauri has just 12% the mass and 14% the radius of the Sun. It has a surface temperature of 2,777 degrees Celsius and is about a thousand times less luminous than the Sun. It's known to have at least two orbiting planets, one of which, Proxima b, is similar in size to the Earth and orbits within the star's habitable zone. That's the region around a star where temperatures would allow liquid water, central for life as we know it, to exist on a planet's surface. Red dwarfs are the most common type of star in the Milky Way galaxy, making up about three quarters of all the stars in the galaxy. And because they're relatively dim, it's easy to find orbiting exoplanets around them. Consequently, they're the most common known source of exoplanets. And for this reason, Proxima Centauri has long been a target for scientists hoping to find life beyond Earth's solar system. However, there's always been a problem with red dwarf stars, and that includes Proxima Centauri. They produce violent flares, spewing out huge amounts of energy and plasma into the surrounding space. Eventually, this would erode away any atmosphere around a nearby planet and would also irradiate anything on the planet's surface. And that includes any hope of finding life on the surface of Proxima b. The study's lead author, Assistant Professor Meredith McGregor from the University of Colorado Boulder, says red dwarfs flare a lot more than stars like the Sun, and astronomers are only now beginning to understand the magnitude and character of their flares. McGregor and colleagues observed Proxima Centauri for 40 hours using nine ground and space-based telescopes, including the Australia Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder ASCAP, NASA's Hubble Space Telescope, the Atacama Large Millimetre Submillimetre Array Radio Telescope ALMA, and NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite TESS. This marked the first time astronomers have had this kind of multi-wavelength coverage of a stellar flare. As they watched, they saw Proxima Centauri erupt in a massive stellar flare, one that ranks as among the most violent ever seen on a solitary star anywhere in the galaxy. Over a span of just seven seconds, the stellar flare emitted massive amounts of ultraviolet radiation, quickly growing some 14,000 times brighter. Like solar flares and coronal mass ejections on the surface of the Sun, flares on Proxima Centauri are thought to occur when magnetic field lines near the star's surface twist and snap with explosive consequences. However, the flare emitted by Proxima Centauri was roughly a hundred times more powerful than any similar flare ever seen on the Sun. And the thing is, this may not be a rare occurrence on Proxima Centauri. Because in addition to the big boom, which occurred on May the 1st, 2019, the authors also recorded many other stellar flares occurring during the 40 hours they spent watching the star. 
McGregor suggests there'll probably be even more weird types of stellar flares coming from Proxima Centauri, which will help demonstrate different types of physics which haven't even been thought about before now. This is Space Time. Still to come, NASA's Mars Ingenuity helicopter continues to set records, flying faster and further in its latest test flights on the surface of the Red Planet. And we have a new look at the story of the Pleiades Seven Sisters. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter continues to set records, flying faster and further in its latest series of test flights on the surface of the Red Planet. The third of five planned test flights saw the 1.8-kilogram rotorcraft fly to an altitude of 5 metres above the floor of the red planet's Jezero crater. The autonomously controlled solar-powered helicopter then flew some 50 metres downrange, reaching speeds of 2 metres per second. Ingenuity mission managers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, are now sifting through the data from the 82nd test flight with a view to far more venturous journeys over the remaining two tests. A few days earlier, during Ingenuity's second test flight, the twin-rotor tissue-box-sized aircraft also climbed to an altitude of 5 metres, hovered briefly, and then performed a slight 5-degree tilt, allowing some of the thrust from the counter-rotating rotors to accelerate the craft sideways for 2 metres. The 52-second flight also saw the chopper rotate in hover, turning the camera in different directions before returning to its takeoff point. Meanwhile, documenting all the action was the six-wheeled car-sized Perseverance rover, which was parked 64 metres away. Perseverance used its MassCam Z and NavCam cameras to record the test flight program and act as a communications relay between the helicopter, orbiting satellites and NASA's Deep Space Communications Network. Mission managers have given Ingenuity a 30-sol or Martian Day flight test window. Perseverance, which transported Ingenuity on its 278 million kilometre journey from Earth to Mars, landed in Jezero Crater on February the 18th. It's on a mission to search for evidence of past life on the Red Planet, and sediments and debris which have flowed into the River Delta where the spacecrafts landed may well be the best place on Mars to begin the search. This is Space Time. Still to come, a new look at the story of the Pleiades Seven Sisters. And it seems we've just had something the media like to call a pink supermoon. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. Astronomers have taken a new look at the enigmatic Pleiades open star cluster and how its evolution fits into human mythology. The Pleiades are one of the nearest and youngest open star clusters to Earth. Open star clusters are groups of stars which were originally all born at the same time out of the same collapsing molecular gas and dust cloud. Although somewhat still gravitationally bound, it's thought that stars in open clusters could eventually separate and move to other parts of the galaxy. Also known as M45, the Pleiades are located in the constellation Taurus the Ball and are composed of mostly hot blue-white stars. The Pleiades' seven brightest stars can be easily seen with the unaided eye, and they're often referred to as the Seven Sisters, although in reality this spectacular open cluster actually has over 100 stars. 
Now, depending on whose measurements you prefer, the Pleiades are somewhere between 118 and 137 parsecs away, a parsec being 3.26 light years. So, that's somewhere between 385 and 447 light years distant, a light year being about 10 trillion kilometres. The distance a photon can travel in a year at 300,000 kilometres per second, the speed of light in a vacuum, and the ultimate speed limit of the universe. Amazingly, different cultures in different parts of the world all describe the Pleiades as being seven women or seven sisters or seven daughters, possibly some ancient throwback to early human civilization. According to Greek mythology, Orion fell in love with the seven sisters and pursued them. Eventually, Zeus got sick of it and turned both Orion and the Pleiades into stars. Similar stories are told in other cultures. For example, in Australian Aboriginal Dreamtime, the culture of the Great Victoria Desert region near Aldea in outback South Australia has Orion as a young male hunter who chases but never catches the Pleiades who are a group of seven young sisters. In Orion's right hand is a club filled with magic fire. That's represented by the giant red star Betelgeuse. However, the Pleiades' older sister, represented by the Hades star cluster, taunts Orion standing in front of him. She defensively lifts her foot, which is the star Audebrand, and is also full of fire magic. Apparently, that causes Orion great humiliation, putting out his fire and allowing the Seven Sisters to escape. One of the interesting facts about this ancient Dreamtime story is that it accurately describes the variability of the star Betelgeuse, which brightens and fades over a period of about 400 days. This Pleiades Seven Sisters story is remarkably similar to legends found in many other cultures around the world, among peoples who haven't had any contact with each other for tens of thousands of years. Of course, it's important to point out there are also many other cultures that don't have these fables when referring to the Pleiades, and so there could be a strong argument for this being simply a case of confirmation bias. Astronomer Professor Ray Norris from the University of Western Sydney has been studying the mythology behind these Pleiades Seven Sisters stories. He points out that when most people look into the sky at the Pleiades, unless they've got a really good pair of eyes, they only see six stars. And he says that's significant because many of the stories talk about seven sisters, but with only six being visible because the seventh has been captured or fallen in love with a mortal and went into hiding. Similar lost Pleiad stories are found in European, African, Asian, Indonesian, Native American and Aboriginal Australian cultures. In fact, Norris says many cultures regard the cluster as having seven stars but acknowledge only six are normally visible. And they have a story to explain why the seventh has become invisible. Norris says a detailed study of the motion of the Pleiades suggested the mythology could date back up to 100,000 years, to a time when the constellation looked quite different to what it does now, a time when seven bright stars were clearly visible. Careful measurements with the European Space Agency's Gaia Space Telescope and others have shown the Pleiades are slowly changing position in the sky. One star, Plone, is now so close to the star Atlas that they look like a single star to the unaided eye. But 100,000 years ago, Plone was much further away from Atlas, and the pair would easily have been visible as two separate stars. So 100,000 years ago, most people really would have seen seven stars in the cluster. And that's significant, because that's also around the same time that modern Homo sapiens first began to migrate out of Africa.
Nora says it means these may well have been stories told around campfires in early Africa, and the people then brought the stories with them as they travelled to faraway places like Australia, Europe, Asia, and eventually the Americas. What we actually see is, so obviously we know the Greek myth. In Greek mythology, there were seven sisters, and they apply these, and they get chased by Orion the hunter. Fine, that's a nice story. So when the British invaded Australia 200-odd years ago, they found the Aboriginal people had almost the same story. And so all over Australia, you have people, firstly, talking about the Seven Sisters, which is odd because you don't actually see seven stars there. And yet they called it Seven Sisters, same as the Greeks. And then they said, many of them said, many of the Aboriginal groups said, oh, that guy in Orion is chasing the girls. And so the early settlers said, oh, that's interesting. Clearly, the Aboriginal people picked up the Greek story. Well, we actually know that's not the case now. So people commented on that at the time. But we know that's not the case. It, it looks like this story is about seven sisters. You see it's all over Aboriginal Australia. It's really, really old. It's thousands of years old. And you see it depicted in rock art and so on. Um, so it's not something that's been given to the Aboriginal people by the Greeks or British or Europeans or anybody else. It really is old. So then you have to ask the question, so how come the Aboriginal people tell the same story as the Greeks? And how come they both say there are seven sisters even though most people only see six stars, actually. And then, in fact, in both cases, the Greeks have a story to explain why, although there are some sisters, you only see six. In Greek mythology, one of the sisters fell in love with the mortal. Uh, in Aboriginal stories, story, the details vary across Australia, but one of the girls has usually been captured by Orion or something like that, and so you can't see the seventh sister. So this is really weird. It's not, uncanny similarity in the stories. There are other stories, of course, but in fact, these are the main stories in Aboriginal Australia and in Greek mythology. And so what we've suggested is that if you go back 100,000 years, firstly, all of humanity was living together. We know that all modern humans, whether they're Greeks or Aboriginal Australians, they all came out of Africa about 100,000 years ago. So all of humanity was sitting around campfires 100,000 years ago in Africa, telling each other stories. And the other thing is that 100,000 years ago, the stars in the seven sisters actually moved a bit. And so 100,000 years ago, it looked like there really were seven stars. So what we see now as six stars actually looked like seven 100,000 years ago. So what we're suggesting in this article is, well, maybe this is where the seven sisters story comes from. Maybe it comes out of Africa when there really were seven stars. Maybe this is the oldest story in the world. A lot of civilizations have flood stories. They probably all date back to the same event when the Black Sea was formed. Quite possibly, yeah. There are also similar sorts of stories. I wonder with the flood stories, um, you get stories of people throwing stones down from the sky and various cataclysmic events. The thing about the Southern Sisters story is that it is very specific. It's actually there used to be seven sisters, now you only see six. Much more specific and saying, oh, we had this great flood, which changed everything. And so that's why I think there may be a common route. That's Professor Ray Norris from the University of Western Sydney. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Still to come, the mainstream media getting all excited about a pink supermoon. And later in the science report, a new study warns that breathing secondhand smoke increases your risk of getting oral cancer by 51%. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. 
Well, it sounds like the sort of thing they used to do at Midnight Shift or Studio 54, but we've just had something making a big splash in the media, which they're calling a pink supermoon. The term supermoon is a trendy name adopted by mainstream media looking for clickbait to describe the perichy full moon. That's when the moon is at its closest orbital position to the Earth during a full moon. See, on average, the moon orbits the Earth at a distance of roughly 384,400 kilometres. But the moon's orbit around the Earth isn't a perfect circle, it's slightly elliptical. That means one part of the moon's orbit will be a little bit closer to the Earth, about 357,000 kilometres, that's known as perigee. And another part of the orbit will be a bit further away, around 406,000 kilometres, that's called apogee. So the difference is about 5% closer or further away than average. The exact distance to perigee and apogee also vary due to other factors, such as whether the lunar orbit's long axis is pointed towards the Sun. Also, the Moon's orbital extremes are greatest between November and February each year, when the Earth's orbit places the planet and its Moon closer to the Sun. See, Earth's orbit around the Sun is also elliptical, by almost 2%, with perigee occurring in January, and therefore the Sun's gravitational influence is greatest during this time. Now, the thing is, supermoons really aren't all that uncommon. They usually occur in groups of three, about every 13 months and 18 days. That means every 14th full moon is a supermoon. Now, while a perigee full moon or supermoon can look around 14% larger and 30% brighter, you really wouldn't notice the difference unless someone told you. And even then, any size difference perceptions that you do have would more likely be due to your imagination. In reality, you need some serious astronomical equipment to measure the difference. Also remember, a full moon always looks unusually large and bright when it's near the horizon. That's an effect known as moon illusion. One of the consequences of perigee full moons, or a perigee new moon for that matter, would be a noticeable increase in tides. Many factors influence tidal heights at a given location, although they're usually highest known as spring tides at full or new moon when the sun, earth and moon are all aligned. So a perigee moon, being a bit closer than average, would also result in slightly higher high tides than average. So where did this term supermoon originate? Well, its history goes all the way back to 1979 by an astrologer, not an astronomer. Now, for those unfamiliar with the difference between the two, an astronomer is a person who studies space in the cosmos using the scientific method to learn about the universe. An astrologer, on the other hand, is a person who uses inaccurate positions for constellations, planets and other celestial bodies at different times of the year to tell other people about their character or to predict their future. There has never been any scientific evidence supporting any of the claims made by astrology, and its continued success depends exclusively on people's gullibility. Now, because true perigee full moons don't occur all the time, but only once every 14 full moons, trendoids have modified the term supermoon to describe any full moon within 90% of perigee, something else mainstream media were quick to adopt. In fact, the term's become so popular, even NASA are using it now as an opportunity to educate people about astronomy. Okay, so where does the pink come from? Well, apparently that's a traditional name used by some North American First Nations people to describe the blooming of some pink wildflowers in their local area during the Northern Hemisphere spring. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. 
Scientists are working on a new type of COVID-19 vaccine. It's called a subunit, and it contains only a small part of the virus alongside of an agent that stimulates the immune system. And importantly, early trials have shown that it does provide protective immunity. A report in the journal Nature claims the results paved the way for larger clinical trials. Subunit vaccines use only very specific parts of a virus that the immune system needs to recognize it, in this case, part of the spike protein. Because of that, they can be among the safest and most widely used vaccines ever developed. But these types of vaccines also require an immune system response-boosting agent, called an adjuvant, to be delivered at the same time. Researchers showed that immunized blood serum was able to neutralize the UK COVID-19 variant, but was less effective against the South African variant. Some 3.2 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 virus, with another 150 million infected since the deadly disease first emerged in Wuhan, China, and was spread around the world. A new study warns that breathing in secondhand smoke increases your chances of getting oral cancer by 51%. The findings reported in the British Medical Journal are based on a meta-analysis of studies across North and South America, Asia and Europe. Data from 6,977 people across five studies was analysed, 1,179 of whom had oral cancer. Those exposed to secondhand smoke were found to be 51% more likely to develop cancer, and those exposed for more than 10 to 15 years were more than twice as likely to develop oral cancer compared to those without secondhand smoke exposure. Paleontologists have long debated how fast Tyrannosaurus rex could really run. Now a new study reported in the Journal of the Royal Society Open Science claims the giant theropod dinosaur may have walked the prehistoric Earth at a far slower pace than first thought, roaming the planet at a leisurely 4.6 kilometres per hour. Using a three-dimensional tail reconstruction and biomechanical models, Dutch researchers estimated the rhythm of T-Rex's swaying tail combined with its stride length and found that the tyrant lizard king had a preferred walking speed of 1.28 metres per second, or 4.6 kilometres an hour. Now that's similar to the natural walking speed of emus, elephants, horses and humans. Dinosaurs that walked on two legs, such as T-Rex, have tails suspended by spring-like ligaments, and they sway up and down with each step. By matching their walking pace to this natural swinging frequency, it reduces the amount of mechanical work required. Some previous estimates had suggested that theropods like T-Rex walked almost double the speed. Who can forget the chase scene in Jurassic Park? Tyrannosaurs lived in the late Cretaceous period, between 68 and 66 million years ago. They reached lengths of over 12 metres and could weigh over 14 tonnes. Well, if you have trouble keeping up with the kids, you'll be pleased to know that you're not alone. New research suggests that juvenile tyrannosaurs were slenderer and relatively faster for their body size compared to their multi-ton parents. The findings, reported in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, analysed a collection of 72.5 million-year-old fossilised tyrannosaur footprints believed to belong to members of the same species but of different ages. The results suggest that as tyrannosaurs grew older and heavier, their feet also became comparatively more bulky. The smaller tracks were slender, while the bigger tyrannosaur tracks were relatively broad, with a much larger heel area needed to support increasing body mass. The authors say the tracks suggest the juvenile tyrannosaurs would have been much faster and more agile for their body size in comparison to their adults as the relative speed of these animals decreased with age. 
Magnesium sulfate, better known as Epsom salts, is a household chemical with many traditional uses, including bath salts. Occasionally, it's also used as medication, although many of its claims have never been scientifically confirmed. Now the tiny Pacific nation of the Cook Islands is being targeted by shonky snake oil salesmen pushing Epsom salt cures. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says the Cook Islands coroner is now examining a fatality linked to the use of Epsom salt solutions as an alternative medicine. And the nation's health department has issued urgent warnings to people not to use Epsom salts in place of medication prescribed by their doctor. Epsom salts are used in cleaning a lot, so the suggestion is that if you might have a particular condition, why not clean it out with a good dose of Epsom salts? It is used for uh, various conditions as a laxative, so you know you take a dose of salts to clean yourself out, but that is not something you do lightly. And people suggest that you have to be under some sort of be checked out, etc., under some sort of doctor or nurse who's going to look at you and say, "Yes, yeah, okay," and to keep a watch make sure it's done safely. But there are people out there promoting Epsom salts as basically a cure-all for all sorts of diseases and uh, conditions. And the Cook Islands has got a specific problem with Epsom salt cures at the moment. Cook Islands is probably just one place of many where uh, people are not necessarily prepared or don't have the information they need to uh, take on board proper medical treatments. They might not have the facilities or they might have a distrust of government bodies and that might be encouraged or they might be under the sway of uh, religious groups. They're certainly probably under the victims of cranks and quacks. The measles out break a year or so ago, two years ago, in Fiji was a classic case. Now that had a particular cause because a couple of nurses misdosed some children and they unfortunately died. But there was basically not the vaccine, it was the way it was implemented and given out. But that caused a huge anti-vaccination movement within Fiji and the vaccination rates dropped from reasonable, the 80s or 90s, way down to about 20 or 30 percent of people. And then when measles hit, they were hit very, very badly. And of course, what happened then was that the anti-vaxxers came on board and said, see, vaccination, this is what it does to it's not going to cure you. Unfortunately, people in those places are especially prone to anti-vaccination, as they are in most developed nations as well. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. 
And Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.